You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. This is Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast, and I have uh, a great friend of mine and philosopher and thinker, Daniel Kern. Uh, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ken. It's great to be here. I'm excited. Yeah, it was. Um, I've been meaning to ask you on for quite some time. Um, uh, for the listeners, uh, Dan, Dan and I know each other from time studying uh, philosophy at Marquette University, and I just wanted to say right from the top, um, Dan's very influential as far as uh, uh, introducing me to uh, science, uh, something that he studied um, in the philosophy of science at Indiana University and uh, quantum mechanics and looking at big, huge uh, questions in philosophy and taking a look uh, at the science and some of the amazing answers that are there according and also with his um, uh, philosophy and theological training. So, um, uh, Dan, I don't know if you remember some of those some of those <laughs> many conversations we had and and just uh, you know, talking philosophy and, and talking the 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 big questions. I just wanted to express uh, how much you helped me along, and how much I still think of you in uh, talking that philosophy. Thanks, I appreciate it. I I use quantum physics a lot in our. We have a philosophy club at my school, and I have a discussion of quantum physics that I go over every year with the philosophy club students. It's always fun. Yeah, I um. I think when you introduced me some of the concept in a way that, that I could understand and, and showing some uh, things, it, it really uh, gave me a new insight into different approaches to questions of uh, causality in philosophy of, you know, of truth and knowledge. Not that I hadn't bumped into those, but as a way is a, 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 a deeper understanding and teaching. Um, just so uh, listeners, you know, um, Dan was raised, uh, born and raised in uh, British Columbia. As I mentioned, uh, studied, uh, got a master's of philosophy and science at uh, Indiana University, master of divinity uh, from Regent College, and a PhD in philosophy from uh, Marquette University, uh, as I mentioned, where Dan and I met. Uh, Dan, one thing I wanted to mention to you, I don't know if you know this, I've been a, a mentor um, for students at Marquette University for the last eight or nine years, and the... Uh, alumni mentoring program at Marquette is recognized as the tops in the country, actually. Wow, I didn't know either of those things. That's good to hear. Yeah, it's been a unexpected and, and great experience to kind of uh, help students uh, I don't know, navigate <laughs> navigate what to do next, right? So um it's but it's been an it's been a nice time uh with that. Um so uh, we're going to be talking to Dan about um, really the, the big question, uh, why is there something rather than nothing? But I wanted to just spend a little bit of time, uh, Dan, I'll ask you to speak in just a bit, but I wanted to give the listeners a backdrop to um, uh, Dan's book, A Reasonable Christian uh, Faith. I just wanted to mention to Dan and, and to folks some pieces I found in, in, in going through this work. Um I really, uh, and how I felt it was different from other books uh, as well, is um, one piece, uh, Dan, I really loved the, the practical approach, um, kind of pragmatism and kind of a working out of um, uh, solutions 
uh, within the work. I felt um, through my contact with it, thinking about American pragmatism, um, uh, William James, it's just, there's always been something endearing to me about practical solutions or practical answers to, to, to problems. Um, in, in, in writing the book, how much, uh, did, did your, how much did your approach, uh, take from that kind of taking a look at complicated problems and saying, how do we sort this out and how do we find truth and meaning in this? Did you, did you approach this in a very pragmatic, practical way, your work? Um, well, the, the section that I called applications of a reasonable Christian faith was definitely a pragmatic approach trying to say, if we look at this one particular problem, how would the things I say about Christianity, looking at what Jesus said and did, how would they apply to this one particular problem? So that was, very, that was a very practical focus there. Uh, one of the things, uh, one of the things in the in the in the book uh, that I wanted to ask you about is um, one of the points in the that you make early on in the consideration of 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 God that surprised me. And I'm away from the academy, and I don't always deal with these these deeper questions. But um, in your reading, that the God must be worthy of worship. That and that 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 reading that it made a lot of sense to me, but I hadn't really um, read that as as part of the approach. Could you talk a little bit more about about that statement that that the that the God must be a God must be worthy of of worship? Uh, yeah, that was uh, that was kind of I think a new idea for me too. It kind of came to me in the writing of the book, and it traces back to Aristotle primarily who who said that when people make decisions about what to do, ultimately their, their objective ultimately is to be happy. And so I was, when I, when I had established that there must be a God, at least reasonably must be, um, I was thinking about the characteristics this God must have. And if, if people, if God created people and people's ultimate objective is to be happy, whatever they do, then it would it would follow reasonably that that God made people with that desire or that motivation, and so that one would think that God would have provided a way to um, uh, satisfy that desire. So I say in the book, it's not necessary that God. Maybe God just likes to see people, likes to frustrate people and punish them and stuff. But if there were such a God, since we ha- we do everything in order to be happy. We couldn't really worship that God because worshiping that God would be leading us away from happiness. So since we do everything we do in order to become more happy, then if if God is worthy of worship, then God must be leading us toward more happiness or more satisfaction or something like that. Yeah, I I, I really uh, I really I was surprised in in the book in a few different ways. That was one one place that I was, um, and it was very fertile for me to think about. The other piece was, which I, I really got into your analysis again, which I wasn't really familiar with or hadn't read an exposition, which was Jesus's actions within the historical context that they occurred. You spend time within the work, uh, again, with things that feel like of trying to show the shock or the radical nature of what Jesus was talking about. And I, I knew that 
theoretically in my head that yes, this was a big shift. I, I understand that. But what I had an experience was kind of reading more close readings and understanding the true nature or the true shock of the, the, the preaching or the moral system there. Um, so I thought that was very successful in, in, in reaching me and me to have a deeper understanding, uh, of that is, is that, is that, and I'm asking this as a very, in a very naive way, is that uh, an area that's been of uh, a decent amount of focus, um, you know, may, whether it's linguistically or academically, or is uh, where did you come in contact with that? It was so helpful for me. Yeah, that, that's a pretty common theme. The, the prodigal son story is my favorite story from the scripture, and it's because of how radical that father acted in that, in that culture. Um, but th there's a number of writers who talk about Jesus' parables, and how his parables always take something that's normal and everyday and flip it on its head. Okay. There's actually a book that was written oh, probably 30 or 40 years ago now called The Upside Down Kingdom. And the, the focus is there is how Jesus r really flipped everything so socially and culturally on its head with his teachings and his actions. I, um, I started to think because... I've, I've, I, as you know, I've, I've read a, a good deal of Eastern philosophy. I was thinking about like Zen koans do, right? It, they, they trip you up. It's that riddle. It's that shock. And you're like, yeah, this there, isn't supposed to happen. That's not supposed to be said. That's nonsensical. And right. I ran across a book at least somewhere along the way that talked about Jesus and Buddhism and how they're similar in that way, that flipping of things on their head. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, uh, that's definitely something I want to, um, I want to dig in more. Another piece, uh, Dan, and I know you studied, uh, you know, as a philosopher, you can go deeper into language itself. Another point, which was very helpful for me, and I thought uh, subtle, was your discussion about language and what language makes possible, the language that we use makes possible in certain uh, limits um, to it or different ways of expressing it. And I felt when you made that point and was taught, you were talking about that point in the book, it was very easy to connect, um, some universals, uh, to that, that people could be talking about in different languages and different ways about the same thing. And one point that you made, it said the existence of non-empirical or spiritual knowledge is accepted by followers of every major religion. You know, and it was just a, a, a simple point that was just needed to be just needed to be stated. But I was very um, intrigued by that or where our skepticism shows up. And of course, you deal with, you know, things of, of miracles. And I, I believe when I read how you wrote about them, it was like there was this piece where it was like, there's a lot of unexplained things, <laughs> folks. There's a lot, and uh, oh, yeah. we seem we seem hung up on this. Um, I thought it was that I thought that was very uh, useful, um, very useful uh, reminder. Um, yeah. Do you have to remind uh, uh, folks a lot about that? That a lot of the things that are the strongest beliefs might, you know, be spiritual or other. Well. I, I that I, that would be part of what I was doing in my book. I think trying to remind people of that because we've come become such a rational scientific community. 
the the Western world at least that there there's very little space for anything other than empirical truth. I think in our culture, so that was one of the ideas I had in the book was trying to remind people that it's hard to establish non-empirical truth. I'm straightforward about that. And empirical truth is pretty easy to establish, but that doesn't mean there isn't any non-empirical truth. And um, so we have to be careful about that. Yeah, I liked um, a lot of the, you, you know, your your analysis kind of, you know, taking apart, um, you know, false dichotomies and, and getting out of some intellectual traps as far as uh, ways of framing issues. All right, Deanne, I want to go back to the beginning of 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 it all. Um, the podcast is something rather than nothing, and as I've done it over time, I've stumbled around even how to ask the question because I I end up getting should it be how is there something rather than nothing? Some folks want to pose it that way, and. Or, or the why. But one of the big reasons I, I, I brought you on, um, you know, in connection to, you know, your book was to, uh, was to talk about the something rather than nothing question. And the reason I, why I ask you is, is, is because of, um, because of your approach, because of your knowledge of other thought systems and, um, and because of your scientific uh, background, your study of the philosophy of science. So how do, we, how do we go about this question? Well, my first response may be somewhat disappointing. I'm sorry, but um, I don't think we can answer why or how there is something rather than nothing. Um, the philosophers I'm primarily interested in wonder about what, if there's any conclusions or any further stuff we can draw from the fact that there is something rather than nothing. Right. And there are some interesting discussions about what we can, what we can know about the world or the universe or whatever word we use for it, given yes. that there is something rather than nothing. Uh, and with that framing, let's proceed. All right. Well, I'd go all the way back to the ancient Greek philosopher Par Parmenides and actually, the modern philosopher John Locke both had similar arguments that given that there there is something now, it must be the case that there's always been something, because if there was ever a time when there was nothing, then nothing would ever come from it. So if there is something, then there must always have been something. There can't be a time when there isn't something. So that's a pretty re remarkable conclusion to draw right there. And yeah. go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Dan. Um, to go a little bit further, this argument's been carried all the way through Plato and Augustine and Aquinas and everyone, but um, the world that we experience is in philosophy is called contingent. It means it, it can either exist or not. It doesn't have to exist. But if everything were always contingent, then there must have been a, some time in the past where nothing existed. But that can't be the case, as we've already established. So we, we can further establish that there's something that must be non-contingent. That means something that must exist in an absolute sense, that it's not possible for it not to exist. 
And that's, that's what leads many philosophers to the idea of there being a God outside of this world that created it. Yeah. I, um, one of the, one of the pieces I wanted to, um, to ask you about, and, and of course you're close in particular about language is, um, one of the difficulties I've found sometimes in having the conversation, let's say between the, uh, a Buddhist or a, a Christian approach can sometimes be around the terminology that, you know, some of the analysis that you do uh, within the book. So one of the, one of the difficulties I think for uh, a general Western thinker is that the term, uh, you know, emptiness or nothingness or no inherent existence within Eastern context is, you know, deemed to see as some sort of nihilism, you know, and it's a reasonable conclusion. I mean, the way those terms are used, that there's no thing, where things, are things real? And one of the things I found in, in, in studying Buddhism is that uh, there's a reclamation of the nothing um, mm. as a general, like, realization of the way things are, that within the nothing... I hate to use this for shorthand, but there's that, that there is something that there is everything else. And the exercises in the philosophy in that tradition is all soteriological in a sense. We're thinking about, we're thinking about salvation through, you know, through philosophy and, and, and through our, um, through our thinking. Do you believe part of, um, part of the issues, if we look at the question I try to ask and I base the show on in a strange type of way is what nothing actually means. And is there some kind of ways to kind of cut through that? <laughs> um, yeah. If I could just give you a couple of reflections that you made me think of, I, th I think you and I studied Kant together and talked about Kant and Buddhism a, a few times. We sure did. And yeah. It, it's also similar with Taoism, I think, this idea that we we carve the world up into language and language is based on concepts which we have formed based on our experience of the world. But but if you the question is what if you go beyond that? What if you go beyond the language that we're using or the concept that we're using and and ask what's behind what's there? And in in one sense the answer is we can't know, but in another sense the answer is nothing because everything that we, all the things that we think are already conceptualized and put into, langu into language by us. So if you could see reality unconceptualized or unlinguistically, it must seem like nothing. It must be some connection to nothing because something is always a, a perception that we have. Yeah. Uh, you had another point that you said a couple of reflections. I didn't want to cut you off. Well, I, I think it was Kant and Taoism were the two things I was bringing, oh, yeah. bringing together there. Yeah, well, and I, I remember because around the same time of studying Kant, and of course I'm thinking about noumenal and phenomenal, these kind of uh, ways of describing reality, the easiest way to, to describe it. And then um, uh, within Buddhism, there were even like analogies in the way that you talked about things. It was kind of like 
you would have a, a Buddhist practitioner saying, yeah, like I know the thing is like really there. You can touch it and all this stuff, but there's no inherent existence behind it and don't get attached to it because the further your attachment, the further you're suffering. So it's like kind of like super practical um, about it or realize that all these somethings kind of unlayer them or what's doing them, which is, um, I don't know. It feels like what, what philosophy, what philosophy does. Um, uh, one of the other questions I had, uh, or one of the ob observations, um, and I just wanted to, uh, give me a little bit of feedback. I appreciated, um, in your analysis, uh, other philosophers in, in other, uh, traditions, including a um, and there's 12th century, um, uh, Islamic, uh, a philosopher and, uh, you know, studying the, you know, uh, covering Plato, Aristotle, um, Aquinas, but your, um, use of, uh, Taoism and, and other tradition, other traditions seem to be very much, um, kind of what I would call within Buddhism, kind of like skillful means of using devices and ways of showing, uh, the, the, the same, the same reality. Do do you, find did you use that deliberately as kind of like a way to kind of just approach maybe the same thing from a different angle i appreciated the different ways of uh that that you approached the question um yeah i i think so i i think i was trying to show there that these same these same problems have been answered by people in different cultures and different religions very, very similarly. So I wanted to bring in a non-Western, non-Christian thinker to show that there, these ideas have been around, not just in Western, the Western world, but in uh, the more Eastern religions as well. I wanted to ask you as a professor, uh, uh, Dan, um, you've taught, uh, You've taught for 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 quite some time. Is it's Chafee? Is it proper pronunciation Chafee College? Chafee, yes. Yeah, Chafee College. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, do you find do you find uh, differences in um, interest in philosophy uh, over your time with with students coming in, or is it is it feel the same? I ask this question in art sometimes. Like, what is the role of art? Is it always is it always is are, is it different now? And, uh, but I was just wondering, um, with regards to why somebody might study philosophy, it's 2023 now. Do you see different, you see something different? Um, no, the way I see it is there, there are certain students whom philosophy just seems to take hold of and it's never predictable and you're never quite sure. And a lot of students come into my classes and say, I, I didn't even know what philosophy was, but having had this class and started reading philosophy, I find that I just, I love it, and I can't get away from these questions and these problems. So in that term, I th in that sense, I think philosophy is really a universal kind of thing, and it, it has this way of just capturing certain people and drawing them into itself. And I, I find that very similar over the whole time that I've been teaching and learning. Yeah, I, 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 I've been, like I said, I've been away from the, the academy um, uh, a bit. And uh, it's a place where I spent, you know, uh, quite some time. And uh, I was able to teach at the University of Rhode Island and teach uh, mm. philosophy. So I, I've, I found many blessings um, over time to come back in contact 
uh, with the university and college. And I've always been close to um, colleges and universities and places where I lived. I lived in Madison, Wisconsin, of course, and uh, uh, out in Milwaukee. And of course, being from the East Coast, um, <laughs> a lot of colleges and universities out that way. Um, I just uh, I just want to say, Dan, it's always great to when I think and because uh, I think about you often and thinking about uh, you teaching down that way, uh, Thanks, uh, I, mean, I know those I know those students get a get get a get a lot from you. <laughs> um, Dan, I wanted to take the conversation on, on a little bit of a different angle. This is an art and philosophy podcast, and uh, and uh, I just wanted to see uh, musings uh, from you and uh, uh, about what about that question. Uh, what is art? Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that since we've been talking about this, and I'm not an art philosopher by any means, but I, I'll give you my general responses. Um, the philosopher Thomas Nagel wrote a book called The View from Nowhere, and in this book he was he was talking about this the view from in science and rationality to try to view the world, see what the world would look like from without any perspective, and he said that that's impossible. You can't. It's impossible to step outside of your own perspective to to view the world um so as an aside that's really what kant said i think too i think all these problems trace back to kant that kant said you have you as we were just talking your concepts and your language that you that are a way to view the world um and also as an aside i was gonna i almost thought about making as a subtitle of my book the view from somewhere just to use kant's idea um, but I didn't love think that. anyone would know what I meant by that. So, oh, I but, would have loved it. I might not have known, but yeah, I would have loved it. <laughs> right. Um, the other thing is, I just heard an NPR episode today about it's called it's about a documentary called "The Art of Grief," and it's about a guy who who lost someone, maybe his father, and did a lot of processing of the grief through art, through drawing and painting. And he, he's reflecting on how his his drawing and painting and stuff was different during his pe- period of grieving than it was otherwise. And then they talked to an art therapist, and the art therapist said art is a way to get beyond language and to ad- address and express ideas and perspectives that can't be captured linguistically. So I thought that was a good analogy or a good explanation of art in general. It's, it's people who can somehow step outside of language and use a different medium to to ex- express their perspective, right? They have a unique perspective on the world and they're expressing that perspective without, without language, without traditional rational concepts, but with a different medium. And so that really all, all struck me and kind of came together as a, a way of looking at art. I find, and I now find quite as a helpful way. That's, that's the, I was responding, uh, responding to, to what you had to say. It was very, uh, very, just very powerful. And, um, no, I appreciate you mentioning the, um, the art of uh, grief. Um, I remember encountering, I believe the, the name of the, um, artist was Preston Zeller. I haven't seen uh, that film yet, but I was very, uh, very intrigued because one of the things in this podcast that I've gotten in, into was um, what art, what art processes for us. And I think when you talk about your definition of, of art, of what is art, it's about how do we speak? How do we speak and communicate about things in, in, in other ways? That's why I found that to be powerful. So uh, I do have to watch that, that uh, film and, uh, 
and you found it uh, to be to be quite the film, didn't you? Yeah, I, I haven't seen the film. I just heard the discussion about it on NPR. On today, NPR, it, yeah. Yeah, it's, it sounds, I want to see it when it comes out. It sounds very good. Well, we'll make a point to uh, to, to both watch it. Um, I believe it's available on Amazon. Hey, uh, uh, Dan, I wanted to make sure that um, the listeners to the podcast have the opportunity to read some more about things that, that you've written or what you'd like to share um, about philosophy or, or, or ways to contact you and things like that? Uh, sure. My, the book is published on Whipfinstock and can be found on their website, whipfinstock.com. It's also accessible through Amazon as everything and, and Barnes and Barnes and Noble as everything is nowadays. Um, I'm not sure. I guess you could contact me at kerndan1 at yahoo.com, K-E-R-N-D-A-N-1 at yahoo.com. That's an email you can use to contact me if you want. Hey, Dan, um, thanks so much for, uh, for coming on to the, uh, coming on to the podcast. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually, as you know, it's, it's a great pleasure to, to see you in, in, in the chat with you and, um, uh, hearing your voice in, in, in your book, particularly one that taught me a lot, uh, and not just, not just some books, but taught me a lot. Uh, I just, that's what writing can do. That's what communication can do. I just wanted to let you know, uh, I really appreciate you and coming onto the show and writing and, uh, teaching the way that you do. Well, thank you for the kind words about my book. That's, that's why I wrote it. So I really appreciate the feedback. Yeah. And, and um, I felt that it was, it felt it's, uh, it reflected a lot of conversations we've had that helped me uh, be, be, be more compassionate, more open, more understanding. And I think the nub of it for me, Dan, is about, how we treat each other, no matter where we're polarized or things around that. How do we interact and honor each other or love? I love the, the, the attention you pay on that word in this book, love. As a centering concept, I don't, I'll go with that one. <laughs> yeah. I'll go with that one. So I, I, yeah, I, I, I tried to work that into my the definition or idea of love that Jesus talks about is wanting and pursuing the good of the other, not just our own good. And, and I, w one place I said, you, you have to think about the good of the other and make sure you understand what is there, what is the good for the other. Otherwise you're claiming to want the good of the other is kind of hollow. And it feels and sounds like an, uh, you know, like another radical inflection just of how you think about it, how you think about love. So, um, uh, Dan, great to see you. Thanks for coming on to something rather than nothing and like, you know, uh, helping me frame this question I've been trying to get at from a million different directions. But um, uh, great to see you. And thanks from the bottom of my heart. Thanks, Ken. It's been a pleasure. Hope to do it again sometime. Take care. Take care. This is Something Rather Than Nothing 